I think the key is the smallest useful unit of significance. Not the biggest possible one. Not let's overhaul this thing. What's one tiny thing that we can do that begins to turn that spark into a flame? Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Okay, I finally got to interview Seth Godin, and here it is. If you don't know Seth, Seth's been around for a while in the marketing world. Not only is he a legend, he's written many bestsellers, and his latest book called The Song of Significance focuses on the part of humanity that we haven't focused on for years. As businesses continue to grow, they focus on the bottom line, they focus on humans being a resource instead of actually having some dignity, having agency. He compares what we need to be like more like a beehive, like a colony of bees. And we dive into what this looks like so that you can better run a business, you can better run a team, regardless of the size. The book is powerful. In fact, I've got my whole team now reading it, we're dissecting it, and we're thinking, how can we run a better business, a business that we're proud of running, where we empower each other instead of commanding each other to do things? Listen in. It's powerful. It will change the way you do business. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. And today I've got Seth Godin with me. We're going to talk about the feeling and the meaning and the idea of significance. It's a beautiful thing. Seth, welcome. Thank you, Tristan. I go way back with success. It's just a pleasure to be talking to you. Dude, I I, I was looking at the archives and yes, you do. I was, <laughs> I was doing some research. So thanks for everything that you do. Let's jump right into this. The first question I had as I was reading it, I just finished it yesterday. A great book. I recommend it to all businesses, teams, entrepreneurs, business owners. It makes you look at your company differently in a really, really positive way. But I've got a question. Was the name and the title of the book inspired by the Song of Solomon by any chance? Or where did that come from? It came from Jacqueline Freeman, who is a feral beekeeper. uh, And she wrote a book called The Song of Increase. And The Song of Increase, that that simple sentence just sat with me. And when I learned more and more about how the bees leap into the future, I realized we're not bees, but we can learn from them. And then I surveyed 10,000 people and found out what they thought about their best job they ever had. And when the two of them came together, that's how I ended up with the song of significance. I like that, man. Yeah. And you bring up the song of increase towards the end too. Now this survey that that you took, because that's at the beginning of the book, you, you mentioned you asked 10,000 people in 90 countries and I was surprised the top response was like feeling challenged at work, uh, but in a healthy way. I, I was like, what? I for sure thought it was, I, money was a, towards the top. That's that, what that bosses, a surprise for you? 
bosses all think that. But even when you ask bosses about their, because everybody has the best job they ever had. If you ask any human being, tell me about the best job they ever you ever had, they can answer it. They can't tell you what their favorite Herbie Hancock album is, but they can tell you the best job they ever had. And bosses think the answer is I got paid a lot and I didn't get fired because that's what bosses do all day long. They hire people by telling them they're going to pay them and they get them to obey by telling them they're going to fire them. But I gave people 14 choices and those came in last. That's not what people care about. That doesn't mean you have to underpay people. It's the opposite of that. But it means what we seek is meaning and connection and significance. And that's not easy for an industrialist to offer their employees because they want obedience. But that's not what people want. All right. So in, in this book, you bring up schooling, industrial capitalism. In fact, one one of your whole sections, I took my daughter to the site. She's 16 years old. And I'm like, hey, look, just to show you uh, where, where the idea of school came from and what they're teaching you, the red dot, you bring up the red dot in the book. Yeah. Let's talk about this idea of, of how industrial capitalism ha- has really changed schooling and where where we're heading with it okay so it's let's get the definitions right because most of what success writes about is small c capitalism where somebody who isn't a behemoth a monopoly comes up and solves the problem and market-driven capitalism is really powerful it's about solving people's problems but industrial capitalism which henry ford really put a nice polish on is let's get some machines and let's make them as efficient as possible And then let's get some people and call them resources and make them as sufficient, as efficient as possible. So if you've ever heard the phrase uh, jerking people around, that phrase came from the Ford uh, assembly line, because when people visited there, it looked like the workers were getting jerked like marionettes this way and that. And in order to get a human being to go along with that, you have to do two things. You had to create a culture where you had to go get a job. And two, you had to indoctrinate kids into thinking it was normal to go to a dark building for 12 hours a day and be told what to do. So that's what school was based on. By the, it was pioneered by the Prussian paramilitary system, brought to the United States and amplified by millionaires. It's worth noting the first teacher's college in the United States was in Massachusetts, and it was called the Normal School. And that's because they were training teachers to take to get kids to be normal. And I wrote an entire book about this. It's free on the internet. I hope your daughter will read it. Called Stop Stealing Dreams at stopstealingdreams.com. And it's really unsettling to read just how consistent and persistent the top-down mindset of schooling has been for the last hundred years. And you also bring up Frederick Taylor, which I didn't know. You mentioned he wrote a manifesto, Principles of Scientific Management. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I never, I didn't know that that's where the idea came from that right. Ford jumped on. It was super exactly. cool. They, uh, work to get, they work together and it's still prevalent today. So lots of people who listen to this have heard of the book, The E-Myth Revisited. And yeah. it's about working on your business, not in your business. but the author goes down this whole side road where he says every job in your company should be made so that the cheapest, stupidest available person can do it. 
Because if you treat everyone who works for you as a cheap, replaceable cog, you can make more money, it thinks, it seems. But while that was true in 1960, it's not true now. Because as soon as you turn someone into a replaceable cog, you can get an AI to do it for free. That the only jobs that are left that add value are jobs where we can't write down what we need someone to do. And that's the opposite of Frederick Taylor. Yeah, that that was enlightening to me. I didn't realize that that was like a pivoting point for for the world. I was like, no, oh, that's very different, man. Uh, thank you for that. So you mentioned agency, and you you, th- you say that that's one of the that things that people really want. Can you expand mm-hmm. on that? Even though you do it in the book, I want people listening yeah. in to to understand that meaning of agency. Right. So just to decide, I don't write books to sell books. I have nothing against trees. I don't need to chop any down. The purpose of the book is so that people can do what you did, Tristan, which is you can hand it to somebody who didn't get the joke yet, who didn't read it yet. It's this portable container. So Mm -hmm. with that said, when we think about how we're going to show up and make a difference happen, how we're going to show up and engage with people to help them get to where they want to go, Something that humans care about more than almost anything is agency. And agency is freedom plus responsibility. The freedom to make a choice and the responsibility of owning what happens after you make the choice. And so if you are at a call center that is, let's say, monitored by Amazon's new cloud service, every word you speak, every sentence you uttered is being recorded and monitored. There's a stopwatch controlling how long you spend on each call, and you have no freedom to change what you're going to say. There's no agency in that job. That job sucks. And that is the opposite of the job people dream of having, because they are willing to take responsibility if they have the freedom to make choices. It makes it a lot better, um, just an environment for people in a leadership position to lead this way. Yeah, but, but scarier. Because it's it's scarier to be the employee because if your boss is telling you everything to do, you're not on the hook. And it's scarier to be the boss because if you're not telling people what to do and your boss is mad at you, you got to take the responsibility because you created the freedom for other people to make decisions. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking as I was reading this, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this, this transition, this mental transition for leadership really puts a lot of tension Mm -hmm. in in the actual leader and saying hey wait a second i think i have to work on myself first and and lead better because i'm no longer telling people what to do exactly a year and a half ago i took a year of work and volunteered to run the carbon almanac which i was a volunteer and so were the 300 people who built it with me and in five months around the world in 40 countries, we built a 97,000-word, 250-page almanac that had no significant errors, that was illustrated and footnoted and fact-checked, and we delivered it ahead of schedule. Well, I didn't write the book. I just helped create the conditions for 300 people to write the book. And that is happening everywhere we look. Google's One of Google's chief engineers last week issued a memo that said their lead in AI is completely gone. And it's not gone just to the people at chat at OpenAI. It's gone to 
hundreds of open source projects, people coming together to work on something in loosely knit groups and then moving on to the next thing. And we're going to see more and more of our culture and our commerce driven that way. Okay, so on on the Almanac first, because you brought up a couple of things there. Um, You mentioned page 19. I had to scroll through my notes because I was like, oh, page 19, I remember. Uh, And you bring up Anne-Marie Cruz, one of the Almanac's volunteer leaders. And she highlighted the four-step way of thinking here. I thought that was really important to go over, which was simplify, clarify, triage, and decide. Can you expand on that? Because I was like, holy cow, I just went on a tangent on <laughs> this. Like simplification is, is amazing. Okay. So what is page 19 thinking? Early on, we knew that there was going to be a page 19 because there's a page 18 and a page 20. There has to be a page 19. But we also knew there wasn't one person on our team who had the insight, the writing skill, the research skill, the editing skill to write page 19 all by themselves. So how are we going to get from where we were to page 19? Well, the answer is you do something. You add some element to what you're doing. You say, I wrote a paragraph. Here, I made this. Here, I I added this graph. And then you encourage people to criticize the work. Never the worker, but the work. I just made that better. I just expanded that. What if we did this? And this cycle of page 19 thinking is available to everybody if the culture permits it, to be able to say, here, I made this. And then Anne-Marie took my notion and amplified it by saying, you know what we make around here? We make decisions. We don't make widgets. We don't dig ditches. We make decisions. So what you do is you say, what is the purpose of this paragraph? What is the point of this chart? And one of the reasons people hate charts so much is people put charts and stuff with no reason. Why did I do this? What's the point? Okay, simplify that. Put it in front of people. Let them make it better. Repeat. Mm. Often the problem that that I found in just thinking through it, I'm like, I think I'm the problem most of the time because I'm the one that wants to tell people, hey, that's not right, right? It's like some feeling like I need to take control over it, which is Mm -hmm. the opposite of what we need to do. Right, that we are... Whittling our, you know, if you think about companies that are around decades later, the person who started them didn't build the whole thing. That Sergey and Larry aren't actively at Google. Steve Jobs has passed away. There's a long list. Thomas Edison has left the building. So, how did we end up with these companies? Because one person started a thing and then someone improved it and someone improved it and someone improved it. And the cycle continues. And Mm -hmm. where you get into trouble, is when you say, no, I am the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, the only one who's allowed to make a decision, then you're paralyzed. Yeah. There was a a phrase, a sentence you had uh, where you mentioned what we produce is change. And I was like, dude, that's beautiful. That's like every amazing company should have that as their, one of their mottos, right? Because that, that is really what, we should be looking to do, especially with AI, like just we're in the middle of the, the growth and that's going to take a lot of different jobs away. Jobs that you're talking about that that are more of the, hey, commanding people what to do, right? And, and I think here's where we have to look to companies and say, hey, look, 
we offer we offer this ability for us to make things better not not scale like you're saying right and i i just was like damn we need to go deeper into this so if i'm looking to change the culture of an organization small large doesn't matter where do we start with the people that have already bought into at least wanting to make change and work with you i think the key is the smallest useful unit of significance. Not the biggest possible one. Not let's overhaul this thing. What's one tiny thing that we can do that begins to turn that spark into a flame? So I had a really lucky first job. And I was 23 years old. There were 30 people in the company. I was far and away the least qualified person in my role. and. The Christmas holidays were rolling around. We made educational computer games for kids. It was a really long time ago, so we were first. And I wasn't doing anything on Christmas, so I went in and I answered the customer service lines for six hours. And everybody who had their call answered was surprised that a human being answered the phone because they were just calling, you know, something wasn't working. It was Christmas Day. They just got their present. And in those six hours, I got to say anything I wanted. There were no call center things and I didn't even have a headset, right? But for the next year, I knew more about our customers than anybody on my team because I had spent the whole day talking to them. I knew what they were stuck on. I knew what they were afraid of. And that day, I still remember that day. How many years ago? 40 years ago? Because I changed some people and they changed me. And I was able to do that because I had agency. You also listened. You, yeah. you paid attention, right? And I think in this in this process, you also mentioned that I don't know who it was. Was it the the person that created Kinkos in the story that you were telling? Mm-hmm. Said they'd go in to their offices and say, "Hey, what 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 new idea do you have?" And then any great idea, you go like, "Hey guys, we're going to test this out, right? That's working." So, well, I, tell me about far, that. it's far as that. All Paul's still around. Paul and I almost wrote a book together a very long time ago. And Paul has profound dyslexia. And he will tell you that that's one of the secrets of his success. He's almost illiterate. And once, when Kiko's first started, it was in a, uh, an office so small on a California university campus that if it was mm-hmm. raining, they had to close. Because in order to open, they would roll the Xerox machine out of the storage room into the hall outside, and they could do work. That's how small his first shop was. Wow. as As he expanded, the only thing he did all day was visit each store. And he would walk into the store and he would say, what's new? And if you couldn't tell him something your store had done that was new and working, you were in trouble. So all the employees were spending all their time hoping for Paul to come back, waiting to tell him the innovation. And so he had hundreds of stores all trying things. And then he would report to all the other stores before email, report to all the other stores what was working. And that seems trivial, but it's so important because at Marriott, if something isn't working in Nashville, it's also not working in White Plains and neither place is telling the other and neither one is trying anything. 
Interesting. Which, and now that I'm talking to you, I'm kind of seeing the sequence of the book open up more for me, which is now I'm thinking there was a section that you mentioned where a lot of bigger companies, they want to shut down the squeaky wheel. Like that person who just seems to not be pleased. He wants to complain, but you're saying we need to embrace those because those are power users. Can you expand on that? So um, if you have the Disney channel, I strongly suggest that you watch Hamilton. It was great in person, but it's pretty great on TV, but turn on the subtitle because when you watch Hamilton with the subtitles on, it gets way better because you can catch all the magic of his wordplay. And where did subtitles and closed captioning come from? They came from the deaf community because the deaf community was an edge case. The deaf community said, look, we can't hear what's being broadcast. We might only be 1% of the population, 5% of the population, but adding this feature to the television will make it better for us. But it turns out it makes it better for everybody. Because that tool shows you what someone who's using it differently needed. And so when we find the edge cases and celebrate them, they are going to teach us how to make something better for everybody. How do you operate your businesses? Like you, you've written so many different books. It's, and, and when I ask you like, hey, your team, and you're like, I don't have a team. I'm like, uh, how, how do you operate in a way that you're always moving forward and making things better. How, how does that look to you? Okay, so you're asking four different questions at once. I'll yeah, try to, I'll try a to break bunch of questions. Pieces. I'll try to break them into pieces. The Thanks. first one is, uh, I did not make this t-shirt and you didn't make the shirt you're wearing. That there is comparative advantage. And when a tool exists that someone else can use well, it doesn't make sense unless we get joy from it to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so when I started one of the first internet companies, we had to invent the email sending machine. The thing that MailChimp sells you for $20, we had to build it from scratch for a million dollars. Now, if I was doing something with email, there's no way I'd build my old engine. I just paid MailChimp $20. So what I've done is embrace the idea that I'm a freelancer. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not trying to build a business that makes me money when I sleep. I'm not trying to earn my investors a payback because I don't have any investors. I make money when I show up. I'm doing my work and then I stop doing my work. And there's nothing wrong with being a freelancer. And a lot of people who are part of the success community call themselves entrepreneurs, but they're really freelancers and they would be happier if they embraced that. Right? So that's number one. Number two is I don't go to meetings. I don't use social media and I don't watch very much television. So I save seven hours a day that most other people don't have. And the third thing is, if there's a job that could be done to my specification, why would I hire someone to do that? I just outsource it, right? I need these 25 photos retouched. Well, there's all these people who can do that for you if you get good at being a permeable organization. And so the work I do now would have been impossible 30 years ago. I know because I tried. But we all have the most sophisticated machine ever made, a laptop. It is hooked up to 2 billion other laptops. Our job isn't to say, how do I make as much 
busy work for myself as I can. It's what change am I going to make right now? What is this for? Who is it for? And getting very clear about who we are seeking to change is the last part of it. Because, you know, I'm very lucky. I've sold a bunch of books. Not one of my books has had more than 1% market share. Not one of my books has reached 1% of the US population, which means to a rounding error, I have no readers. And that's fine with me because I have enough. If I wanted to be 10 times more popular, I'd have to do things like pay the Kardashians or hang out with somebody famous. And What would that get me? It would make my writing worse. It would make my day worse. It would cost me a lot of money. So instead, small groups, well-organized. Do you, do you not like meetings, Seth, like actual meetings, or do, do, you, do you think they're useful? What, so I have, quite, I have quite a rant in the book about meetings. Yep. A, me, a meeting is not a conversation. You and I are having a conversation. We are both getting something out of it. Three people can have a conversation. But as soon as it's six people by Zoom with the boss talking, talking, talking as a way of taking attendance to make sure people aren't out getting their dry cleaning, that is not a conversation. That is a meeting. Meetings are a way for the person who called the meeting to show power. Because if you really want to engage with people, make a five-minute video, edit it really well, and then email it to every single person you want feedback from. Then you can have a conversation. Or Mm -hmm. write a memo, old-fashioned but true. It will force you to be cogent and will let people asynchronously chime in. And so, you know, 300 people in the Carbon Almanac, we did not have one all-hands-on meeting. Not one. Because what would be the point? It just doesn't make any sense. And so I view meetings as a symptom of industrial capitalism, not the way conversations are a symptom of listening to the market and solving its problems. Yeah, I'll I'll take that definition now and use that. Thank you. (laughs) That's a good one, man. I like that one. So if you're looking at the current playing field when it comes to companies starting to implement a lot of the the tech with AI, what would you say that that companies need to look to do a better job with when it comes to hiring people? What do they need to do now that AI is going to take, in some cases, a big part in the future of what people would be doing? What should we be hiring to? Well, when the steam shovel came along, it replaced countless numbers of ditch diggers. And that was not good if you were a ditch digger, but it was great news if you wanted to make buildings happen. And AI feels to me like the same thing times 10. If you are competing with AI, you're out of business. But if you get AI to work for you, it's going to create new jobs. And so the opportunity, even if you're running a small enterprise, is to say, how do I find the people and train them to interrogate and work with AI to build community and value that big competitors can't because all they're trying to do is replace jobs. Mm-hmm. What do you think we're missing when we're looking at AI right now? Just from, just from your experience and what you're seeing is happening. Well, I feel duty bound to raise a flag and say, spam and scams are going to go through the roof in the next six months. So just to give you an example, you could train an AI and say, here are 1,000 names. Go look up these people on LinkedIn. 
Go figure out their email addresses and then send each one a personalized scam letter. Da 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 da. And then do that every four minutes for the next three days, right? We're going to see this massive multiplication of bad actors who are trying to erode our trust and steal our attention. Sorry to be mm. bad news, but that's inevitable. But at the same time, I think what we're missing is not only is AI cheap, but it's always on. So let's think about an idea that goes all the way back to Sigmund Freud, which is that if you go for therapy, you should go for 50 minutes once a week, or maybe five times a week. But why is it 50 minutes? It's 50 minutes because you got to schlep to the doctor's office. And by the time you're there, you got to stay long enough for it to matter. But with AI, when an AI starts doing therapy, it can do three-minute sessions. Every time you feel anxious, just talk to your AI. The session's over three minutes later. These kinds of always-on persistent interactions, we're used to them from smartphones, but they're going to be 50 times more powerful. Interesting, man. Uh, so you also mentioned that, that you missed an opportunity with when the world was changing around you, right? With, with the internet, with email, with that. What would you say to people that are looking at AI and saying, you know, it's just not for me. It's just, it's just a fad. What, what, what can you, what can you help with there? Okay. So in 1993, it was my job to figure out what was next in tech. We had AOL, CompuServe, Microsoft, other people as clients. We were doing millions of dollars in revenue, pioneering email marketing. It was my job when the World Wide Web came along to not ignore it. Now, if it's not your job, feel free to ignore it. Everyone needs a hobby. Just go do what you were doing. But if your job is to find disruptions in the marketplace, understand them, and then use them to serve others and make a living at it, this thing, you need to understand it better before you say you're going to ignore it. And there has been no tech I am aware of that is easier to start understanding faster and cheaper than this. You should get an account with OpenAI. You should get an account with MidJourney. You should get an account with 11 Labs. So I set up an account with 11 Labs, and then I had them train their computerized voice on six hours of me reading an audiobook. And mm -hmm. so now I have a tool. If I type in anything, it says it back in my voice a voice that sounds so much like me, my wife cannot tell the difference. So what is around the corner is if I wanted to turn my blog into an audiobook, it would be about 400 hours long, the longest audiobook in history. And I would just press a button and 11 labs would just read my whole audio, read the whole blog. And so now that you know you can do that with 11 labs, can you think of 50 businesses that are worth doing like this? I think you can. And then multiply that times music, times art, times writing, times this, times therapy, times everything else. So yeah, feel free to ignore it, but you have to understand it first. You got to play with it. Which reminds me of what you said, which was, I'm not sure what this is yet. Let's interact and see. Yeah. That, that I loved because that we can apply to, to everything in life. I feel like when we meet people, we make mm -hmm. quick assumption, categorizing things and people. How have you learned not to do that? Was it just that one big costly mistake or, or was it a different process? Oh, no, I do it all the time. And I'm trying to get better at it. 
One thing I rant about in the book is false proxies. I think false proxies have cost us an enormous amount of money, but mostly opportunity. We think that if someone looks like us, but they're tall or handsome or beautiful, and they went to a famous college, and there are no typos on their resume, they must be a great hire. When we learn nothing about whether they're a great hire from any of those things, that the average height of the US president continues to go up, even though presidenting doesn't seem to be getting any better. We vote for tall people because it's a proxy for some sort of leadership. And caste systems and race and division, these are all amplified by this. We see someone walk into the store and we assume they're a good customer or a shoplifter. Based on what? Right? Mm -hmm. False proxies. And so for me, leaving people out of it, for me, a false proxy is typesetting. Something that is beautifully typeset and properly kerned, I think is good. And something that is sloppily typeset and poorly kerned, I think there's nothing smart coming from these people. They, they don't care. And there's plenty of evidence that I'm wrong. And I have to see my bias and say, well, all my clues and cues tell me that this isn't going to be good. Like I'm really good before Yelp. If we were driving through the streets of LA, I can tell you if that's a good restaurant or not from the outside. They're like the ones on Pico. The, the the sort of uh, ethnic hole in the wall kind of places. Uh, Jim Left calls this uh, Chowhound Radar or Chowdar. And my Chowhound Radar was very good. Now, not so much okay. because they all stole the ideas from each other. But yeah. people aren't restaurants. And we should do a much better job of finding out whether they're actually offering us something of value together, not judge them based on height or race or whether they have a disability or not. That's true. I was, I was talking to Mitch Kapoor and Frida Kapoor sure. and last Mitch, and, Mitch and I go back to 1984. I figured when, when you guys were, when I was reading on the background on you, I'm like, I'm pretty sure Seth knows Mitch. So that's why I brought him up. Um, Frida said to me, she's like, Tristan, the way that I, the way that now I look at, whether or not somebody's going to work in an organization is I look at what I call distance traveled. I don't look at whether they came from MIT, Stanford, because the amount of work they've put into living their life matters. And I was like, that to me was brilliant. I'm like, this helps me with my biases. So uh, I just thought I'd, I'd share that with you. Yeah. And you brought up, um, she's, I think it's, is it Tom Derry or his first name? I'm, I'm, is Thomas Derry. Yes. Yes. Perfect. So I had him on a podcast last year. Oh, great. And we, we dove into, first of all, his book, but more importantly, the car wash. And mm-hmm. you bring it up in the book. I was like, as soon as I got that, I sent it over. I'm like, dude, did you know? I'm like, can you bring up what, what you think of Thomas Derry's company? And the importance of what he's doing, because it hits on the significance aspect. Right. So let's, let's get hard-hitting business here for a minute, which is uh, a properly run car wash is a little bit of a piggy bank. It, you, you put some money into it, and you get money out and money out and money out. But you're going to make commodity returns, because you can't raise your prices. You can't pay your people any less. It's as busy as it's going to be. You're done. And Thomas backed into something for really good reasons that ends up leading 
to a better business, which is his car wash is staffed mostly by people who are not neurotypical, who have autism or somewhere else that they're something else they're wrestling with. As a result, people will drive past two or three other car washes to get their car washed at his car wash. And they will tip better. And they will, most of all, have a better experience because they can tell themselves story that they're engaging with other people. Add to that, that because many of the people who work there aren't neurotypical, they had to rebuild so many of the systems to enable people who couldn't conform to the poorly designed systems to be able to do their job. Those new systems actually do a better, more efficient job, no matter who's working with them. Mm-hmm. And so the end result is by seeking to do the right thing, employing his brother, he is now employing many, many people who couldn't get a job doing anything else. He's making more money. And he did that by establishing the conditions for significance. His turnover is lower and customer satisfaction is higher. And so let me just, I just want to highlight something here because lots of people are into this higher. And I just want to put my thumb right on where this problem lies. So if you've ever had Ben and Jerry's ice cream, I'm guessing you have, Tristan, number one ice cream in America. All the brownies mm-hmm. for Ben and Jerry are made three miles from here at the Grayson Bakery. And the Grayson, ba- the Grayson Bakery is mostly known not for their brownies, but because Bernie Glassman pioneered open hiring. And open hiring is very simple. If you walk into their offices, there's a clipboard. You put your name and phone number on the clipboard. And then next time a job opens in production, they will hire the next person on the list. Doesn't matter if you're formally incarcerated. Doesn't matter if you used to have a drug problem. Next person on the list gets hired. No interview, you're hired. Now there's three weeks of paid training. Maybe you can't hack it. If you can't do the job, you can't stay. If you can do the job, you get to have this. And now your life has changed. Because you didn't get the job because you know someone. You got the job because you were next on the list. So the body shop uh, adopted open hiring uh, at their retail stores throughout the world. And they saw that turnover went down 60%, 6 and that the key metrics that they measure their salespeople on went up 15%. So the question is, why don't more companies have open hiring? And the answer is because the boss wants control and power. Because yeah. the boss wants to believe that they can pick people. It's impossible to imagine for them that the next person who walks in the door might be the best person. And once we can get our arms around that and say, you know what? The best proxy is people who can do the work are the people I want to do the work. We can create whole new ways to measure what's important. Dude, I love that, man. All right. So look, I have a couple of fast questions for you just right. for me. Bring it this on. is the first, first time I'm getting to talk to you here, so I'm excited. Uh, do you actually write your books, or do you dictate the ideas and then go through and then write them in pen or pencil? Or I recommend that people, I've coached a lot of friends who, to write books, some of which have been bestsellers. And if someone is feeling stuck, what I say to them is get yourself a digital tape recorder and a friend and go for a walk. And in an hour, tell your friend the thing you want people to know. Because when you're done, you can transcribe that and now your first draft is finished. That's, I can't do that. Because 
my first draft is up here in RAM already. My job is not to make to have enough words. My job is to pick which words. And I only think, not only do I type it, I have to type it with all 10 fingers. I cannot do it on a cell phone. If I'm on a cell phone and I don't want to forget something, I have to dictate it because I can't deal with a little keyboard. And so I will say mm-hmm. stuff. But the stuff I say, I then have to completely rewrite because it doesn't sound like me. Got it. And do you have an actual written journal or do you do a digital journal? Yeah, my handwriting is abysmal. It's a disaster. <laughs> okay. And what's your favorite food, dude? What do you eat? What's your like? What's your go-to? <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite food is brown rice. Brown rice, nice. I like I like eggs. That's my eggs. All right, so, there you go. Izzy, thanks so much for doing this, man. We appreciate you a lot. Thanks, Tristan. Keep making a ruckus, okay? Thanks, bro. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. 